morning. I'll be reading today's scripture from Ephesians 5, 1 through 7, English Standard Version. Be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice, sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Well, thank you for that courageous reading. (laughs) You know? People are like, yeah, I'll help you out. I'll do the scripture reading. And then we give them that passage and you're like, mm, I gotta, I, I gotta read that in front of people. Thank you for that. That was great. And uh, as you can tell, a subject and a topic that we're going to be getting into has been preached a lot behind pulpits in American churches for a long time. And so I'm hoping, praying that there's a different treatment of that this morning, uh, for you. But at the same time, to talk about it from a perspective that elevates the standard of these things rather than just the typical what we can't do. You better not do this, young man, young lady. Instead, to elevate the standard of what God has called us to. So before we get into our passage in Ephesians 5, as we've been working our way through the book of Ephesians, we, you know, we find ourselves getting into these extremely practical areas after Paul has been laying such an incredible foundation for righteousness and holiness and all of the gifts and treasures that we've been given in Christ. And so now we come to this place in the, in the text where it's going, oh, this is what he's talking about. So if I'm really going to behave or conduct myself like a child of God, these are the things he means. And so we live in a, in a world that is um, not really looking at these things under the microscope all that honestly, but I think we're going to find that Paul's world at the time that he was writing this had the same viewpoint. But before we get into the text, I just wanted to talk a little bit about a word that he kind of starts this whole passage off with. Uh, when I go to uh, family reunions, which are usually in my family on my on my father's side as an annual thing and we're here in Maine and so we go and we gather with the family and stuff. All the people that remember my father who has since passed away, when they see me as a full-grown man and my graying hair and all these kinds of things, they all say that remember my father and I know they all remember him quite fondly and stuff. They'll say, you are the spitting image of your father. And I noticed it growing up. I started to see some of the similarities and kids never want to just say they're exactly like their parents, right? I'm a better version or whatever. And then I started seeing myself copying the same traits and doing the same things. And um, I, you won't be able to see it if you're sitting in the back. But this little weird thing of what I do with my hands is I put my thumb over my middle finger here and I cross it over with my pointer finger. And I'll just sit there and it kind of, you know, just the things you do with your, you know. And, and, and I looked over one time and, and I saw my father was doing the same things. And he looked over. He goes, oh, you do that, too? And he said, he goes, I've been doing that ever since I was a boy. And I didn't see him that I could think of. I didn't go, oh, my dad does that. I'm going to do it too. There was just something in me that kind of wanted to do that same kind of weird thing. And I would love to survey the whole room. Like, what of your parents' quirks and traits and things do you have? Do you adopt? And uh, what, what things have you recognized? And don't we get to certain ages where we're like, oh, man, I'm just like my dad or just like my mom. Or you hear those things coming out of your mouth and you're talking to your kids and you're like, oh man, I'm my mother. She used to say the exact same thing to me when I was a teenager and stuff. So we have an imitation, we have a following, we have, but it comes from a place, often it comes from a place of characteristics or traits, the things that are born within us, a lineage that has been handed down to us. And and we know that some of those things are good and some of them aren't, right? 
Some of those things are things, badges of honor or just family traits that we say, hey, it's glad, I'm glad to call myself a small in my case or something. But oh, there's other things that we're like, I hate the fact that that's my family lineage. And I don't want to be that same person. I don't want to give into those same things. I don't want to sound like that. And we have those struggles and those wrestlings. Author James Baldwin said, children have never been good at listening to their elders, but they've never failed to imitate them. We find them catching, copying our characteristics, copying our words sometimes and saying them for the whole world to hear and stuff. And where'd you hear that from dad? So that's why Paul starts off this passage in chapter five, verse one, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. When he says that we are to imitate, yes, he's talking about mimicking, but he's not just talking about play acting or just seeing something and saying, I'm going to go act like that. There's something that's born within us when we are, the phrase that we often say is we are born again or we are born anew. That there's a, a supernatural transformation that happens within us and it starts coming out in these quirky little characteristics like how, what we do with fiddling with our fingers and stuff. Those kinds of traits coming from our heavenly father. We imitate, we are imitators of other things that we see. You know, I, I'm a follower of music and I love hearing about how songs were written and some of the biggest hits that we know. And people are like, yeah, it took me about five minutes to write that. The band got around. We just laid down the tracks. We recorded it. And then it's the thing that made their entire career. I was just hearing uh, something about uh, about that with another artist the other day. And I'm thinking, boy, it's amazing that it just it comes so quick. But, you know, most of those folks will admit that pieces of their song or what got the ball rolling was an influence from the band or the artist that they loved and admired. And they'll come out. The better ones, the bigger ones will admit they've got nothing to lose. They like, oh, yeah, we, we we hear from the Beatles all the time. We borrowed that piece from from them and we, we borrowed that song or even that hook or that lyric from from them over there. There's there's it's, it doesn't seem as though there's a much as much originality as we think there is. It's been said before that originality is nothing but judicious imitation. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. But instead of just play acting, instead of just copying some things that we saw Jesus do, what's being, what's being um, asked of us or reminded of us from Paul is to actually reproduce the godly qualities, the things that are coming up from within us as beloved children of God. So he says, he continues in verse two, so walk in love. And he's going to go on, and as you already heard from the reading, he's going to lay out some very difficult things, some very direct and kind of the, the harder, uglier challenges. And yet he's launching from a place of love in all of these things. Now, uh, we've heard this before from our parents and authorities, right? I'm doing this because I love you. And that's certainly true. And that's a part of this. But it's even a little bit more than that. He wants us to see the juxtaposition of the sins and the things that we fall into or the things that we perpetrate, how opposite they are of what real love is. And that's a reality. That's a sobering reality that we don't often entertain. So he says to us to walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And he tells us that it became this fragrant offering and this sacrifice to God, this thing that God could become pleased with. So a good imitator, a good impersonator, or someone who is mimicking or following in the footsteps of or reproducing the characteristics of asks several questions. Some basic ones. How am I supposed to imitate? And Paul says, well, the way you're going to imitate is by nature or super nature. You have become children of God. So you already have something within you as believers in Jesus Christ. You have something in you that is going to allow you to be able to follow in his footsteps. It isn't just you manufacturing it and saying, I hope I do a good enough job and I don't have the skills yet or anything. He says, no, it starts within you as beloved children. So then the next question is, well, what am I supposed to copy? He answers that by saying love, love, love. That's it. You copy love as you saw it in Christ and you'll be all set. Now, this next question might sound a little snarky. It might sound like I'm saying, well, why should I do it? 
But if you've ever heard an actor say, well, we always need our, our motivation spelled out for us. They ask the director, what's my motivation in this scene? What's the backstory of the character and stuff? It's healthy for us if we're going to portray well. What we're being asked to portray is to ask those background questions or to find your motivation. And that's what I want to spend our time with this morning because Paul wraps it up in identity. He says, we are saints of the Lord. We are royalty in his name and we are light in darkness. Now, I'm only going to cover saints and royalty this morning. And then next week, we're going to have Jeremy Jones if he doesn't, you know, throw up um, and uh, <laughs> and decide not to come up here and do this. But I know he'll be fine uh, to come and t- teach to us out of Ephesians 5 about what it means to be light in darkness. Paul has been using this word walk for a little while now, and we know that walk is a, is a, is a preoccupation with or a manner of lifestyle, how we conduct ourselves. So he says, I want you to conduct yourself not like you used to as an unbeliever. I want you to walk or carry yourself or be preoccupied with the things that a believer would be preoccupied with. What is that, Paul? Well, I've said it in a lot of different ways, but I'm boiling it down to one word. It's love. And he says, I, I, I can give you a definition for it. We use a definition around here all the time that's simply this. Doing the best for the one that you love or the one that you're supposed to love. And I want to key in on the word best because we sometimes do good things for people. We sometimes do what they ask of us or what they permit us to do or any of those kinds of things. But true love, as Christ um, was the example of, is what is best for the other. And that's a harder task to find. That's a, that's a harder goal to achieve. So in words, it's doing the best for the one love. In actions, it's demonstrated in Jesus, giving yourself sacrificially. Did you catch in verse 2 that it said, as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us? The theologians would call this substitutionary. That, that he didn't just do a thing, as so many would believe, that he didn't just do this thing to become a good example, to be like Gandhi or Martin Luther King Jr. or Mother Teresa or anything. He did the things that we would all agree, if, if, if the world copied him, yes, this would be a better place. But he didn't just do them to lay out an example. He didn't just do them to, to create a pattern for us to imitate or copy from a distance. No, he did it for us because we couldn't do it for ourselves. He knew that everybody coming after him would be a poor imitation of what he provided perfectly. Imagine that somebody is drowning in the ocean off the edge of a pier and somebody on that pier is looking down saying, I want to go help this person. So they dive in and they struggle and they push and they shove and they get that person off the out of danger. But in the process of doing so, they're exhausted. They're worn out. Their, their grip is slipping and the rescuer dies. Now imagine in a different scenario, somebody is drowning and somebody's on the pier and says, I'll give my life for you and goes and dives into the ocean way far away from the rescue effort and dies anyway. We would say that's a waste of time, right? That's the difference between a substitutionary death that Jesus did so to rescue us, to lift us out of the pit and the sin that we were in. And gave his life willingly in our place. So we have the definition of love in words. We have it seen in actions. But we have to understand that we have it in the person of Jesus. That he is real. That he is alive as we've been singing about. That our worship of him this morning comes from a place of love and motivation. Not because of a concept. We're not here to just celebrate and shed a few tears over a great concept of a historical thing. But because we believe he is alive today and still actively moving in our hearts. So in the person of Jesus, he sacrificially gave his life. The father sacrificially gave the son as the only perfect offering. And this language that Paul is sharing with us here is fragrant offering and, and sacrifice. 
is uh, language that comes out of the Old Testament, in particular places like Leviticus and the first five chapters of Leviticus talk a lot about the different offerings that the that the Israelites would do in order to cover even temporarily some of the things that that uh, they were guilty of. There was a, a burnt offering. There's a meal offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, a trespass offering. There's all these duties and they're like, turn, I got to burn this and I got to sacrifice this and I've got to do these things. And then at the end of each of those offerings, it would be recorded that the scent or the smell would be pleasing to the Lord. Seeing that none of those things, of course, the Lord knew this. That's why he instituted them. None of those things would fully atone or cover all the sins for mankind. It was all in preparation and pointing towards the fact that one would come and pay that once and for all. That that sacrifice would be perfect, that the scent of that sacrifice would be pleasing to his father, but in a way that he would say, finally, it's paid for. Finally, the transgressions, the sins of the people have been paid for. So Paul is saying, this is the love that we imitate. Sacrificial love, because love without sacrifice is selfish and it isn't pleasing to the Lord. What we're going to see here, and I will admit that I did not see it going through at first, in all my years of knowing these passages, especially in the latter, latter part of Ephesians 4, if, if you're anything like me, you've heard these things preached against. You've heard preachers, and, and maybe you haven't been in church, but you've seen it on TV, or the church has earned the reputation of the hellfire and brimstone kind of presentation of these things. So it comes across as a, a list of all the ugliness, grossness, nastiness, and all these things that other people do, and we just got to make sure that we don't do what all of those people are doing. And there's very little of introspection and seeing where do these come, where do these things come from in us? And even as Paul said, we once were this and now we are tempted to be again remember we said that temptation is a temptation because there's some element of beauty to it and how we sometimes go well wait a second if sin is always so gross and always so ugly and always so whatever then why do we keep doing it because it's really beautiful to begin with it draws us in that way So Paul is going to tie each of these warnings, what we would classically refer to as like a hellfire and brimstone kind of warning. He's going to tie them to something higher, though, and that's our position in Christ. And if we're being honest that this is the stability that many in our world don't understand about the truth of the gospel is that there is there is a reason why God says the things he says, uh, instructs the things he instructs. It is for our health and for our good. It isn't for our punishment and it isn't for um, our smothering, but so that we would live a life that is actually free. So this isn't a judgy rebuke. It's a call to a higher standing. Remember, we go back to chapter four for just a moment in the beginning. He says, I, therefore, this is Paul speaking, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. That was his um, um, uh, opinion of the situation that he was in. He was in jail, but not because of others, but because that's where the Lord wanted him. He said, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So again, the idea is that we will have these things move out of our life because we recognize who we are and how much we don't need them. And I I think what Paul's saying here is that starts with us identifying as saints. In verse 3, he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. This isn't a word that we feel great attaching to ourselves. Religion has made it sound like the saint uh, label is for a select few, perhaps those that seem to be kind of perfect and really nailed it while they were here on earth. And so we get to saint uh, elevate them. And, and so we can pray to them, we can worship them, all that kind of stuff. But that isn't a distinction that the scriptures make, that the scriptures say that because God set aside for himself a people that he would win and rescue, that they all belong to him and they are his uh, beautiful possession. And so we are exclusive to him. We are set apart for his purposes and we are saints living in him. 
So we can't get tripped up with the religiosity of the word saint and instead start to make it seem like, hey, this is something that belongs to me. This is what we see in scripture. It's how God sees us. The, the scriptures are giving, is, is Ron back there by any chance? No? Yes? Yeah. I'm, I'm getting a, a lot of uh, high-end ring um, back here, just to let you know. I don't know if it's only up front or not. Um, but how God sees things is that he sees us as a specific people receiving his specific word. This is how Peter spells it out to us in chapter 2 of his first letter. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. So context here is he's saying we're like Christ. Christ was originally rejected, even though he was the cornerstone, the foundation of the building. And so you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be what? A holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Spiritual sacrifices are living sacrifices. We don't have to appease some deity by flogging ourselves and going without food all the time and just living this miserable existence to show him how dedicated are. He says, no, I paid the price for those things. I want you to live in freedom. I want you to live in love as a living sacrifice. And that would smell good to my nostrils is what he's saying. We jump down to verse nine. He says, you are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. A temptation for us to slip into any of the list of sins that we'll get into here in a second. A temptation for us to uh, go back to the old ways of the old life, or as we've said over the last couple of weeks, start putting on the old clothes from the old closet. It comes often by this thing that one author referred to as identity amnesia, forgetting who we are, forgetting whose we are. Sometimes that comes from a, a feeling of, I'm just tired of being restricted by all the, the holiness stuff and the goody-goody stuff and everything. I kind of want to live like I see my friends doing, or I want to go back to the things that, remember we said we have to play that out in our imagination. Where did it get me last time? It got me to the place of realizing without the Lord, I have no hope, I have no fulfillment. Paul, when he was dealing with some pretty difficult things in the Corinthian church, all kinds of things that were turning into a bad reputation for the church. They were excusing all sorts of things or just showing the hypocrisy of those that claim to be Christ believers. He starts the letter off knowing he's going to say some very difficult things. He starts the letter off reminding the reader that they are in Christ, that he's not scolding them for not even being Christians. He's saying, no, no, you're, you've forgotten. You have an identity amnesia. You've forgotten who you are. He says in verse two, verse two of chapter one, to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. This is how God sees us. We belong to him. A favorable possession. But others see us as well. He said in verse 3, he says that these things must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. And for them not to be hinted, for, for the label not to fit, when others say, oh, yeah, you call yourself a Christian. You say that God solves all your problems. You, you say that you have pain and all that. You just take it to Jesus and all is right. But then I see you doing this or I see you giving into this. And it, the two just don't add up. There's a world out there that says that, that we shouldn't judge others because I don't know what's going on in their life and everything. But that judgment isn't reserved for you, Christian, who happen to have a weak testimony or fall on your face from time to time. But there's a reason for that. It's because of who you represent. It's because of the truth 
that we talked about that as as uh, Romans 1 helped us understand the truth that gets switched off like a light switch, that as God has revealed himself through nature and, and creation and as science continues to discover things that they thought they wouldn't discover and all those things, that we're able to take a switch and be like, but I don't want to believe it. I don't even want to explore it or examine it, so I'm going to flip the switch off. So when you and I get caught up in those things and we start living like the old person and we start to give them uh, fodder or material for saying, see, I told you, they're no different than I would be. Why would I give myself to a, some deity, some restricting God, if it doesn't seem to come through for them? So Paul is saying that these things are, are not proper, they're not suitable, they're not fit for us as children of God because of even how others would see them. All of this is Paul's walking us towards how we should be looking at this list. In verse 4, he says, Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are all out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. There are some terms, there are some statements and things in this passage that we've let kind of get passe and out of character, and we kind of picture some old Southern preacher in a movie railing about these things. But the truth is, when we get back to biblical definitions of the things that we actually deal with in this world, it's clarifying for us that there still is this thing called sexual immorality. And we can say, oh, I knew the church was going to go, but we're talking inward here. I'm not trying to beat up the world about sexual immorality. See, here, here's a clue. Here's a trick. I don't expect non-Christians to act like Christians. Sexual immorality has been softened. It's been labeled. It's, it's a choice or it's expression or it's art. It can even be beauty. All of those definitions can, can, can fit for them out there. But in here, the scripture calls it fornication which is an old archaic word. Nobody uses that phrase anymore. That word comes from a word we all use, we all know, and that's porneia. Now we're saying, okay, it's a very relevant, very current word, right? Because we know where the forms of that are. I'm being a little bit PG-13 and filtering my words because of all the age groups represented here as best I can. But we do have to talk about some of these things. So Paul is saying, let it not even be hinted or, or mentioned of you, this aspect of porneia. Or impurity, which is physical uncleanness. Jesus used this word for impurity when he was talking to the Pharisees. They were acting all high and mighty and righteous and everything. He wants to put them in his place. He says, you are nothing more than a grave full of dead man's bones. That death, that decay is what he uses is the same word that Paul's using here for impurity. Where he says, stop sounding like Paul's saying, stop sounding like a moron. That's what foolish talk is. It's where we get the word moron from. Don't say moronic things. And don't elbow the person next to you when I said that. Some of you are like, see, I told you, Jimmy. Don't do that. Jimmy's like, what? I don't know a Jimmy in the room. I'm sorry if your name happens to be Jimmy. I didn't just accidentally call you a moron, I hope. Which leads me to the next phrase, crude joking. should be careful about that. But really what's getting at here is this whole kind of flow of things. We're talking about the impurity, the dirtiness of mind and speech and this jesting that takes something innocent and beautiful and turning it into something filthy or dirty. I love humor as an art form. I think that sometimes Christians have read things like this and like, so we can't laugh, we can't joke. And I just don't know what color in life there would be without good humor. I think some of the best communicators that we have in the world today are comedians. I don't know if you've ever studied their art form, but you see how they're able to make some big concepts. And I mean, really the things that our world's wrestling with and they, and they narrow it down to one or two lines. And then there's this joke or this zinger that just kind of makes it more palatable. And you're like, I know where this person's coming from. I think humor is an incredible art form and, and one that, that really speaks my love language. However, it is all such a slippery slope because the things that we laugh at, the things we jest about quickly, it's a, you ever notice how you just jump on that slide a little bit and all of a sudden you're heading down the hill really, really fast without even much effort at all. Humor just opens a gateway to all kinds of carelessness and the things that come out of our mouths. 
It's a very slippery slope. In fact, I often gauge kind of where my heart's at based on the things that I find funny. And I notice myself once in a while laughing at things that probably six months ago wouldn't have been all that entertaining to me. And it kind of gets me going, where's my head at that I found that funny where before I would have been somewhat offended by that. It's an indicator, but, but Paul is saying don't slip into that crude joking and it's something we've got to keep an eye on. If we are walking as, as, as saints of the Lord, we're looking after our speech. We, we've got guardrails on things. I want to be joyful. I want people to think I'm laughing and funny and I want to be mixing it up with people. I want to have that lightheartedness because I think that's who Jesus was too. But I don't have to find everything funny. And in fact, the, the quicker I start to see the heart in the humor, I'll start to realize what a, where some of those places that I need to stay out of are. Because Paul says these are things that are, we're saying things that are out of place. They're inconvenient. They're unhelpful. They're unfitting. They're, they're just not appropriate for who we are. But instead, what do we do with that? We give thanks. I'm picturing that prudish Christian who's like, I can't laugh at anything. I just thank the Lord. Like who wants to hang out with that person? But Paul is saying that thanksgiving is the antidote to all of these ugly things. Because if you see the list for what it is, it's a grasping, it's a lusting, it's a desiring for what you don't have. It's a reaching for more. He says, instead, we as believers need to be thankful for wherever we're at, whatever position we're in, whatever the Lord has given us. And the more that we rehearse thanksgiving, the more we don't get led down those slippery slopes. It's incredible that he's tying it to, we do the opposite. We would think the opposite is to stop doing the bad thing. He says, no, you replace it with something more pure, like thanking the Lord for everything he's given you. If, if I apply that to the pornea root, then I'm saying I'm thankful for what I have. I'm thankful for what the Lord has been given me. I am not, I'm not striving for the thing that is otherwise unattainable. Do you see how practical some of this stuff is? Sounds a lot like don't do this, but really it's a, there's life in this. So that's how we walk in our sainthood, but we also walk in royalty. Let's go to verses five and six. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. That's an inheritance here he's pointing out. That's where the royalty comes in. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. I am not an expert in the British crown. And I know that there are a lot of fans for the show and a knowledge that comes. And of course, we have the passing of Queen Elizabeth in the news and I think what is happening is a passing of some, at least at my ignorant level, some passing of understanding of dignity that comes with the crown. That isn't to say that Charles or William or anybody else who ever occupies it wouldn't act a certain way on the outside. But, but there's the, the, these, these, uh, King Charles is coming into the, to the throne with already scandal hanging over his head. Everybody remembers what happens between him and Princess Diana and then what Camilla represents and all of these things. And so he's walking into the, the to the throne with scandal hanging over his head. We're all kind of tired about hearing about Harry and Meghan and all the other drama and who said what. And nobody knows what's going on. Like they're going to let us in on any of it. All of this skirmish and all of this drama and all of this rumor and everything. It just seems like, man. Don't you kind of miss the dignified era of this, the holding the head up high? This is how we behave ourselves. This is the proper aspect of this. And then you see it playing out. I was watching sort of her, her uh, hearse being driven through the, through the, um, the city and people applauding and all these things. And you go, boy, it just seems like a passing of an era of dignity. Royalty for us is... Is something that we have a hard time wrapping our head around in America. We don't really have an experience with it. But this is what Paul is saying is that anyone who is where this list of impurities and things is true of them has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. But let's not be mixed up about this. This isn't an inheritance or a royalty that we've earned. Paul started off the letter to the Ephesians in chapter one by saying that God is the one that predestined us for adoption to himself 
as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. You and I did not necessarily by ourselves choose to be born into the family of God. And so this royalty that we found ourselves stepping into is not a thing that we've earned. It's not a thing we get to brag about. It's not a thing that causes us to look down on others because we're better than them because we got it and you didn't and everything. No, that's what Paul says. This is a choice of the Lord. Peter backs him up and says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. The royalty that you and I walk in is the one that has been given to us by his grace, by his initiative, by his choosing on us. And so this isn't something that we've earned. It's a royalty that has been given to us. However, we have a responsibility to not tarnish the crown that's been placed on our heads. So Paul continues his list. He says that, that we're not to be covetousness, uh, to, to engage in covetousness, which the definition of that word is kind of interesting because it's a fraudulency. I don't, I don't want you to raise your hand because then you're going to prove you're an easy target. But how many of you have been frauded in your credit card stuff? Just kidding. You're not an easy target. It happens to everybody. I don't know how many different cards I've had to trade in and be like, man, someone got a hold of my card again or something. And depending on where you go and spend your money and stuff, there's a fraudulency that takes place. But the, 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 the more connected word for covetousness that matches our list here is greed. This list that we're seeing, this immorality and impurity it takes what we don't own. It takes it from somebody else. And it takes more than we need. My mind goes way back to when Tiger Woods went through his big scandal, public scandal and everything. And I heard so often that people were just looking at him and they were kind of looking at his wife and she was still young and beautiful and everything. It was like, well, why Tiger? And he didn't come out and necessarily say it, but we know why. Because he could. Because he would look in the mirror and say, I'm Tiger Woods. Why should I be limited? Why should I be restricted? That gets into everybody's head, let alone this celebrated, globally worshipped and adored athlete. We, we look at that and that's kind of like a problem on steroids. And it's like, ah, that's kind of, but that's really the same thing that happens in all of our hearts is that we look at ourselves in the mirror. And at some point we get to a place where we say, because I deserve it. Because I'm tired of what someone didn't give me or get for me or something along those lines. There's a sense of entitlement. There's a greed that says, I am going to take from somebody else something I didn't earn. I'm going to take from somebody else something that I don't need. And I'm going to take more of it than in reality I deserve. So Paul is giving us God's love as something different. Now in our world, consent has been touted as the highest license for intimacy. As long as there's two consenting adults, then who are we to judge? No victims, no pain, no anything, right? But if we're going back to our definition of love in Christ, love does what's best for the other person, not just what's permitted. What's best for someone is to look down the road. What's best for someone is to imagine maybe this person while consenting or anything else in all of these different scenarios, maybe they didn't sign up for this. Maybe they found themselves trapped in this, maybe any of those things. And yet here I am here greedily to spend them on my lust. That's what immorality does. It drains the beauty from God's gifts. Immorality robs us of of dignity, it robs us of worth, it robs our relationships of health, it robs our lives of balance. All of the things that our world claims to want to attain and say that that's found in freedom to do whatever you want. You'll get your dignity that way. You'll find your self-worth. You'll get a healthy lifestyle. You'll find balance and order. All of those things, immorality drains out of that pursuit. So Paul is saying it shouldn't even be named among us. We shouldn't tarnish the crown in which we wear because of that. We would be idolaters in that, in that sense. An idolater is one who desires what you aren't meant to have. And that desire is something that has replaced a desire 
for God. John says in his first letter, smaller letter towards the end of the New Testament, he says, for all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life. I want to go back to that Tiger Woods story in our minds, make that connection, that pride of life, that justifying of what I think I deserve is not from the father, but is from the world. So Paul is saying, if you're caught up in that, if that's the identity marker in your life, then there is no inheritance for you. We got to be careful, though, to not infuse what Paul is not saying here. Because there's a difference between losing an inheritance, which many believe, God, I, I, I want you for salvation. I know that you've forgiven me, but because I messed up, because I tripped over myself, you took the gift away. That would put the power of salvation in our hands, not in God's. The, 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 Jesus said that those that are in the hands of God shall not be plucked away from any man's hands. And I would say that includes our own. That we can't say, I want to get away, I want to get away. If we belong to him out of love for us, he keeps us in him. But there's a, there's a difference between losing an inheritance, having the gift taken away, which we don't believe the scriptures teach. And then fraudulently claiming to have an inheritance. This is what Paul's getting at. See, we demonstrate our authenticity by what we give ourselves to, by the desires that we allow to continue to breed within us, the things that we um, uh, chase down, the things that we hunger or lust after. Those are the things that would be dead giveaways if that could be said of us on repetition or we, we give ourselves to that to that current. And then at the same time say that we're children of God, he would say that's a fraudulent claim. You see, many of us get tripped up. Many of us get drawn away by a desire or a lust or something. And we immediately think, because I can see who I am, I can see what I've done. God sees the same thing and removes the gift and he takes it away from me. I don't know about you. I mean, if I, I have children and there isn't a single thing they could do bad enough to make me think that. I would want to make the correction. I would want to make the change. I'd be praying for them, striving for them, showing them, instructing them, doing all those things. But nothing they did would ever remove the fact that I would want them as my own. We don't think God sees us that way. We can hardly imagine it. When we mess up, we think, that's it, I've done it. Paul isn't saying that if you trip in one point, that if you sin in one point, that he's done with you and walks away. He's saying you cannot from one side of your mouth say, I belong to the Lord and he's everything I need, but I also need this and I need this and I need this and I need this, but he's everything I need. So that's inconsistent with, with someone who wears a crown of royalty. It's inconsistent with one who says, I am a saint before the Lord, his, a people of his possession. No, he says that person is being deceived by empty words. They are being duped by the pride of life within them. I refer to it sometimes as an, particularly when I'm talking to our guys, because I, I um, had to come to these terms myself in so many different ways, that the thing that is drawing me away, the thing that is luring or enticing me is lying and seeking to dupe me and make me its chump. That that girl who's saying the flattering things, whether on a screen or in person, or, or that drink or that needle or any of that sort of thing, that thing that's saying life is in me and I want you more than anything else is lying to me. It's only seeking to take me down and destroy me. We don't often play it out in front and go, I wonder where this is going to end up. And then there's this kind of like this inner pride thing that we kind of go, I don't want to be its chump. I, I, we give ourselves over to these things and then it says, no, nah, I didn't really want you. I just wanted you to kind of give me the satisfaction that you'd chase me. This is what Paul means by being deceived by empty words. These poor attempts to justify sin. I'm going to wrap it up with this. I know it's been heavy this morning. If you wonder if these are just statements of an archaic religious system and it's just a God saying, don't do gross and nasty things, but instead it's, and it's not this instead thing of, of breathing life into us and talking to us about a better way. I just want you to hear from those who think nothing of God. 
those that would say um, we're part of an evolutionary process, there was never a God in the mix, and everything like that. Um, there's a, an article called uh, Watching Pornography Rewires the Brain to a More Juvenile State from 2019. And, and I just did, this was like the first thing I found, because I know there's a bunch of stuff out there. If you say, what do people in the world say is wrong with that practice of, 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 you know, consuming all that adult content? There's Ted talks, there's all these sorts of things. And these are not coming from preachers in the South who are sweating and doing hellfire and brimstone stuff. Instead, they're saying things like this, the desensitization That's why I couldn't write the article of our reward circuitry in our brains sets the stage for physical dysfunction. Again, I'm cleaning things up to develop, but the repercussions don't end there. Studies show that changes in the transmission of dopamine can facilitate depression and anxiety. In agreement with this observation, adult content consumers report greater depressive symptoms, lower quality of life, and poorer mental health compared to those who don't watch all of that. Researchers at the Max Planck Institute in Berlin, Germany, found that higher adult content use correlated with less brain activation in response to conventional imagery. In other words, this explains why users tend to graduate to more extreme forms of it rather than just being satisfied with the initial thing that drew them in. Now, there was so much in the article, and I just wanted to grab a couple of pieces of it, but the reality is this, is that God has created a system in which healthy life can be experienced and beauty can be found and safety can be um, experienced because of our doing things his way. But the world looked at this way back in the garden through Adam and Eve and said, eh, it feels a little restrictive. I'm going to do my own thing. And then what we continue to discover is that he had it figured out right from the beginning. But the problem is there's this little thing called rebellion in us that doesn't want to hear that. We have to go down that road. We have to experience it. So Paul is saying we should stop being sucked back into that because we've already been down that road before. We're different now. I tried to put it a little bit differently as this key point. If you're following in your notes and things, it's maybe a little bit clunky, but let me see if I can explain it. Royalty isn't easily enticed by the futility of peasantry. If I'm a a royal in in a kingdom, um, my world is just completely different. The things that I'm concerned about, the resources that I have, my troubles are not the same troubles as the peasants or the subjects in the village. But every once in a while, I might kind of go, I'm kind of sick of being royalty. I hear the partying going on down in the village, and I just want to join in. I'm going to put a a mask on, or I'm going to put some kind of disguise on. I'm going to do the rope out the window, and I'm going to go down, and I'm going to run and be a part of this thing and just experience the life without all these restrictions and pressures and everything, and then quickly realize that it just doesn't fit me. I'm not from that world. I can't really engage fully in it, or it lies to me, or it takes advantage of me, or once they find out who I am, they come from me. It's, it's a w- awakening to the fact that the royal life isn't entangled with the life of the subjects because they're coming from two different worlds. You can care about the life of the subjects. Good leaders, good kings do. They go to that world and say, what do you need from me? How can I rule better? But they don't, they, they just don't fit in that same life. They're different. That's you and me. Not because we're better than them. We're just Born different. We're born in a different environment. We're born with different concerns, resources. We've been given a life that we couldn't earn. We've been given forgiveness for the sins that have sought to wreck us. Hughes kind of plays out this cute little illustration of a mom who was baking cookies and the son, little boy, is watching her do the whole process, and he's dying to get some. And for whatever reason, she doesn't give him one right away, but she's scooping them and putting them in the cookie jar, and she says, you will have these when I allow you to, so you'll have to ask me, and you'll get them and everything. So she puts them on the shelf and leaves the room, and she can hear sort of that ceramic grind of the fidgeting of the cookie jar lid and everything. And so she yells in there. She goes, son, what are you doing? And he says, well, I've, I'm, I'm, I've got my hands in the cookie jar and I'm resisting temptation. <laughs> it's what we do. We don't separate from the lure of sin because 
We don't rehearse our identity. We don't think of ourselves as saints. We don't think of ourselves as royalty. We instead engage in playing with fire and it's, it's, it's a losing battle every time. There is power and beauty found in God's sexual ethic. We can build and experience trust and pleasure and security and health by doing things his way. As, as archaic as it all sounds, it is often experienced that that's where life, freedom, and joy is found. And there's dignity and unity found in God's verbal ethic, how we use our mouths, how we use our speech. We build trust in other people and we receive trust. We give encouragement. We receive encouragement. We build bridges of peace with other people because we're treating them with mutual respect. And we walk in safety in those areas. As we walk in our sainthood and our royal inheritance, we are learning to process all of our actions through the motivation that Jesus had, which was love. Doing the best for others and then asking ourselves the question, so what is the sacrifice from me that is being called upon for me to love others well? This is the higher calling of the instruction that Paul has given us. And I pray that it is life-giving for you. And I hope that it encourages you this week. I'm going to ask you to stand. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, as we prepare to lift our voices up and sing our songs of praise and admiration and acknowledgement of how good you are, Lord, we just thank you that These are not just lofty concepts or you're not some unreachable God, but instead you're the God of the practical. That you walk through all of our specific needs and and interests and you have health and beauty and safety for us and all the ways that you've wired us to desire and to live. Lord, forgive us of our carelessness. Forgive us, Lord, of our short-sightedness of your provision for us. Forgive us, Lord, of making idols out of things that cannot promise life and only leave us empty. Lord, as you forgive us, renew us, and give us the strength and power to turn away from those things that do have reasonable and natural pulls on our hearts and in our eyes and in our minds. Help us, Lord, to acknowledge that you are the God of the real fight. And that this isn't just a Sunday-only conversation, but you're the God of Tuesday morning and Thursday night and Saturday in the middle of the day and every time, Lord, that we go through these battles. Because you, Lord, have made us your saints. You've made us your princes and princesses. Lord, you have made us your children. So help us, Lord, to walk in these higher standards, higher callings, not for our own glory, but so that we can proclaim your excellencies and show the people around us that there is something more hopeful for them to find. Help us to be that light. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.